0: When we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is meant to transform our lives. We are never the same again. The gospel was never meant to merely rescue us from eternity in hell. That's part of it. But the gospel was meant to do much more than that. It's meant to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Theologically speaking, the gospel is necessary not only for our justification, our initial um, uh, standing before God, but and it's not only necessary for our glorification when we will be finally changed, but it's also necessary for the gospel is necessary for our sanctification, our growth in godliness. The time between our justification and our glorification, the gospel is necessary. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2:10. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, and that means we don't simply accept the gospel verbally or intellectually, but actually that we embrace it. That we allow the gospel to transform us. That we allow the Spirit to do the work that He intends to do in us through His Word. That we become complicit with the Spirit. We know this is true, that the gospel ought to transform us, because when we have a person who claims to embrace the gospel but with their life, with their life lives like an unbeliever, we warn them and rebuke them. We say this is not what a Christian does. This is not how a Christian ought to live. We call them to repentance. And this is, our, this is consistent with our understanding of what the gospel does. It doesn't just give us a ticket out of hell. It actually works to transform us, to change us. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul moves from his introduction, where he explains the problem of the false teachers and the demand for Timothy to stand up against these men. He moves from introduction to instruction. And the reason that his instruction is important to us is because he wants us to see that the gospel does have a transforming effect on us. And that those who are transformed by the gospel will be a proper testimony, a proper of what God expects as He works to spread the knowledge of His glory. Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to know what a gospel-transformed life looks like. And so in these first seven verses, he's going to say that the gospel changes us, or it changes the way that we pray for and view the world. And then in verses 8 through 15, he's going to say that the gospel changes the way that we act and even dress in public worship. And then in chapter 3, he's going to say that the gospel affects the quality of our church leaders. That is, that pastor and deacons need to measure up to the qualifications that are established by God. We don't fudge when it comes to to who can be in these offices. We want to to take those seriously. So in other words, the gospel has a transforming effect on us, doesn't it? It changes the way that we pray and think about the world. It changes the way we act and dress at the end of chapter 2, and it changes the way that we choose our leaders let's look at our passage tonight, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read it for you. You follow along in your Bible. This is the Word of God. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as the teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul here exhorts us exhorts Timothy and the church at Ephesus and I think us by extension that that the church should publicly pray for the universal advance of the gospel. That our public praying ought to be in keeping with what our goal is as a church to see the gospel spread throughout the world. So in verses 1 through 2 Paul answers the question for what should we publicly pray? What should we pray about in church and the nature of our prayer, seen at the beginning of verse 1, he says, first of all then, he moves now from the introduction, talk about the problem of the false teachers now, to the instruction. And the first instruction about godly living that he gives has to do with the prayer for the advancement of the church's global mission. And he uses the words, I urge, or the same words used in Romans 12.1, the same Greek words are translated, I urge, as we see in Romans 12, which in the King James is, I beseech you, right, in, in, in the New American Standard, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And so this serves as a commandment, a, an exhortation to Pastor Timothy. And Paul gives four words to describe what ought to be done in public worship, what ought to be done uh, when, when we come together. And these four words effectively sum up prayer. They're just multiple um, compiling synonyms They're synonyms that just kind of um, come right on top of the other. First, entreaties. Entreaties is another word for supplications. These are direct requests made to God that rise out of specific needs. So when we have a need, we come and we offer a supplication to God. We ask God to meet that need. Prayer. Next is the most generic word for the idea of us communicating with God. So this ought to be part of our public worship Petitions interse- is another word for intercessions, which is another just formal petitions, formal requests made to God, confident that He will hear us on the basis of Christ, our intercessor. And then finally, thanksgivings. And this kind of shows maybe not so much the content of our prayer, what we should ask for, but, but really the, um, the attitude of our praying. That when we pray, we pray with an attitude of, of thanksgiving, of gratitude. Psalm 100 verse 4 regularly comes to mind when I'm tempted to come to God with my list of requests and complaints. I like to get right to my list, what I have for you, God. But, but God is the king of the universe, and just like we would come to a king and first offer him praise, and uh, so we ought to do for God because Psalm 104 says, enter into his gates, not with complaints or requests first of all, but first we should enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And so our our prayers ought to begin with thanksgiving. They ought to be filled up with thanksgiving for what God has done. And so all these four kind of encapsulate what we ought to be doing as a church, that publicly there ought to be praying to God, that we ought to be offering our requests for specific needs, for general needs, thanksgivings. Um, We ought to intercede to God through Jesus Christ. So these are not necessarily meant to be a formula for our prayer, okay? So in other words, we kind of have a checklist. Okay, I've done my entreaty. Now I need to move to my prayer and next to my petition, now to my thanksgiving. But rather an all-encompassing way of talking about what we should be doing when we come together. This is one of the elements that is required in a worship service. Notice what should be done with these. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made. This this verbal phrase here is present tense, which requires an ongoing action. It's not just a one-time thing that we did you know, when we started as a church, but this is something that we continually do. And so in verse 1, we see that we should pray when we meet together, but the next question is, for whom should we pray? And so in, at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, we see the object of our prayer, the object of prayer. And the answer is, what is the answer at the end of verse 1? All men. All men. We need to have large prayers. We need to pray bigger than just our own family and our own church and our own pastor and our own friends. Paul is calling us to expand the scope of our prayer that it matches the scope of our vision. That is that we have this vision, this global vision to see the whole world reached with the gospel. And so our prayer should match that should also match the the size of God's universe. In other words, God's what what part of God's universe is he in control of? He's all of it. Okay? So what what should we be praying for? And Paul says we ought to pray for all men. In verse 2, he gives an example of whom uh, of whom we should pray uh, of whom we should pray for. We should pray for kings and all in authority. We should pray for kings and all in authority. Now, what's the value of praying for people outside of these walls or outside of our immediate circles of influence. I mean, most of us are not going to come into contact with high government officials, um, so why pray for people outside of these walls or outside of the people that we ever come into contact with? What is the value of praying for our government? I think one of the values is obviously that God responds to his people, right? Uh, But but I think also it, it... it helps us to have a vision that's bigger than our little church. Right? Sometimes when we only pray for our little needs, okay, not to minimize them, but, but sometimes we act as if we have a local God, as if He's only in control of our little world, and that's all we care about is our little bubble. When God is doing much more than working in, uh, in our church and in our people. Our goal is to see the gospel advance beyond our we could say our bubble, right? And recognize that the gospel spreads out through more than just our people and, and that there are there is much good that's going on in the world and there's much evil that's going on in the world, and all those things ought to be things that we pray about. So when our prayers expand beyond ourselves, we pray in a way that's consistent with our mission. And what is our mission as a church? What is the mission of every church? Well, Jesus gave it to us. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It is to make disciples. Make disciples of your little area. No, all nations. We want to see Jews and Gentiles come to Christ. We want to see the, 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 the Word of God spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea. To the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, if we have that as a mission, then should we not pray in a way that's consistent with our mission. Now let me be clear that I think we can go too far with this. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. I I think we can go too far. I I don't think this is usually the temptation for us is to pray for things outside of us and not pray for our own needs. I think we generally err on on this side, that we only pray for our little needs and we forget about things outside of us. But, but I want to be clear that, that we have a responsibility to do both. And I would say that the primary focus of our prayer ought to be on our needs. In other words, you know, we could pray for all the world and all the politics and political things that are going on and then fail to bring into view the spiritual and even physical well-being of the members of this church before the throne of God. That we don't even mention to God some of the challenges that are going on within our, within our church. And so I would suggest to you that our primary responsibility in prayer is to pray for the members of the church. So I don't want to—I don't want us to miss that. Let me show you this in Galatians 6:10 by way of application of this verse. Galatians 6:10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Does that sound familiar? Okay. The, one of the ways that we do good to people is by praying for them. That's why I'm getting this application from here. So we ought to do good to all people. That's the command but especially, notice the end of verse 10, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I think we have a primary responsibility to pray for the members of our church, but that should not be the only thing that we pray for. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And again, our primary responsibility is to our brother who we can see. That's the language that John uses. You know, we, we might like to be... Um, Extremely loving to people outside of these walls, and maybe people will never see. But, but how are we doing with people who actually um, are, are members of this church who we have agreed to, to come into relationship together and to love and to pray for and to care for their needs? 1 John 4:19. we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So I want to be clear here that verse 20 is talking about brothers, which means Christians. Okay, so we have a responsibility to love our brothers. And there also is this implication that it has to be something that we've seen. If we can say all we want, God, I love you so much. While at the same hate, same time hating our brother, who we see, and what what John says is your liar. Okay, so so it has to be someone that we see, and it has to be a believer. So that's why I would say by implication that, that we're talking about church members. That we're talking about people who have uh, been regenerated. Those are people for whom we ought to be praying. Paul, by his example, is constantly praying for other believers. He's constantly calling people to pray for Him specifically. And so I would suggest that our primary responsibility is to pray for the brothers that we have seen, the brothers and sisters. But that should not be all that we're praying for. Turn back to 1 Timothy 2. I think our prayers should be universal in scope. They should be, go beyond just our needs, our, our um. Prayer requests ought to include more than just what's going on with our individual uh, family and friends. So, what do we do according to this text? We ought to pray. We ought to offer up these entreaties and prayers and petitions and intercessions and thanksgivings to God. For whom do we pray? We pray for all people, and I would suggest, you know, based on other passages, that we have a primary responsibility to pray for our church. And, and then the next question that we need to consider is: What is the purpose of our prayer? We see that at the end of verse 2, the purpose of prayer. Why is it that we pray for all people? So that, the end of verse 2 reads, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So why should we pray for all people, and particularly this example of governing authorities and kings? And the answer is so that we can live a life that's consistent with the spread of the gospel. In other words, we want to pray in a way that's consistent with our mission. And again, what is our mission? Our mission is to reach people with the gospel, to baptize them, to make disciples of them, to teach them. And so Paul calls for us to pray in a way that would be consistent with that goal, that mission, that vision. Pray that you'll be able to live a quiet and tranquil life. The fact is that peace with our government is conducive to the spread of the gospel. Now, to be clear, the gospel can spread through the most oppressive governments. God will not um, suppress the spread of the gospel. In fact, sometimes the the persecution that happens in a particular government can actually cause the gospel to spread even more. But in general, general... Um, uh, General statement that we can make is that, that in peaceful situations, when we live under permissive government, it actually helps the gospel to spread. I mean, think about the advantages of a government that allows for a peaceful and quiet life for Christians in contrast to a government that is oppressive to those who love the gospel. I mean, under which gospel, or uh, excuse me, under which government would you rather raise your kids? A permissive government or an oppressive government? A permissive government to Christians or an oppressive one? What about under which government would you rather witness to your non-Christian friend? And how much more can we do, knowing that we're not going to be in prison tomorrow because we've shared the gospel with our coworker? And how much more can we do under a, a more permissive uh, a government that's going to allow us to live a quiet and tranquil life, tranquil life. I'm saying that wrong. Under which government would you rather meet for worship? One where you have to just come in like some of these places in China or other places where you have to kind of come in two, two people at a time, non-discreetly, always looking over your shoulder, under which one would you rather meet for worship? And and the idea is that we ought to pray for one, a government that's consistent with our vision. We want to be able to move freely, reach people, go out and not be fearful of being thrown in prison because we're sharing the gospel or not be fearful of of raising up our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not be fearful of meeting for worship. So when we pray, we got to pray for all men, but particularly governments, so that we can live a peaceful and 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 quiet life. So that we can have a a a life that is consistent with our mission. To reach more people with the gospel and see them discipled. Notice the qualification of these circumstances at the end of verse 2, in all godliness and dignity. So these circumstances demand that we live faithfully toward God, godliness, and faithfully toward men, dignity, so that we can have a, a, an operation, a, a life's existence that is consistent with my faithfulness towards God and my faithfulness toward my fellow man. So the first main question is for what should we pray? The second main question that we need to consider is why should we publicly pray for all people? So we already know we ought to pray for all people. Why is it that we should pray for all people? And Paul gives several reasons. First, praying for all people is consistent with God's will to save all people. Isn't that what the text says? Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. So publicly praying for the universal good of all people is, according to verse 3, is good. The universal well-being, when we pray for the universal well-being of all people, it is good and it's acceptable before God. Why is this? Why is this type of public prayer good and acceptable to God? And the answer is in verse 4, because God wants all people to be saved. You see that? In other words, when we pray in this way, we're praying in a way that's consistent with God's will. The question that comes up is, what does the word all mean? Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved? Does it mean all as in every single person? Or does it mean all as in every kind of person? Have you ever noticed in the bulletin that when we have an announcement for a fellowship lunch, one of the sentences read, "All are welcome." Now, when that's written in there, do we mean that any person, the entire world, can come? And we're going to take care of you. We're going to have enough food for you when you sit down for lunch. If we had 10,000 people here, would be able to feed them enough chicken? Would we have enough chicken to go around? I don't think so. Right. So, so when we say all, we're not meaning all there, are we? We're meaning all who are reading this, or all who are a part of this church, friends of this church. You're welcome to come. All who come on that day are welcome. And and we use that word in our language in two different ways, just like um, they did in Greek. So we have to acknowledge, that I think, that there are two meanings of the word all. And this is true in Scripture as well. So what does Paul mean? Does he mean all without exception? Does he mean God desires every single person to be saved? Or does he mean that God desires that all kinds of people would be saved, all without exception? distinction let's think about the context what does the word all mean in verse one right that, that prayers be made on behalf of all men does, does is paul calling for us to pray for every single person in the world or do you think he's saying that you should pray for all kinds of people and then he gives an example like kings and authority I would suggest that it's impossible for us to pray for every single person. So Paul is saying that we should pray for all kinds of people. So what about in verse 6? We have the use of the word all again, where it says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now let's think about this for a second, because we we, we need to think critically, not cynically, but critically about the text that we have before us. Sometimes we just um, loosely or, or carelessly just breeze over some of these things, but I think um, it's important to look at the details. Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. Now, what is a ransom? A ransom is a payment that's made for an individual so that they would be bought out of bondage. So let me ask you this question. When Christ died, did He purchase every single person's slavery from sin? In other words, are there any people who will spend eternity in hell? Because if Christ ransomed every single person, then what does that say? Then every single person is saved. Is that what the text is saying? See, I would suggest to you that when Paul says that God desires all to be saved, he is saying God desires all kinds of people. That is, Jews and Gentiles, not just people my chosen people, the Jews, but all kinds of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I recognize that godly people disagree with me on this interpretation, but, it, but it, if you take the three uses of all in this passage to mean every single person, then, then I would ask you, if God desires for every single person to be saved, then why are they not saved? I mean, what, what is it, what's the disconnect between God's desire and what comes to fruition? And and um, and I, I think verse 1 also needs to be considered if, if you're going to take the opposing view. And again, I, I, I say good people, godly people disagree. Um, I, I, I can see the valid arguments on both sides, but I, I tend to believe that what God is doing here is He's saying that I desire that all kinds of people would be saved and that Christ gave a ransom for all kinds of people. Not every single person. Further evidence that um, God's desire is seen in the end goal of their salvation is that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice the end of verse 4. So it's not only that he wants to see them saved, but he wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. And my understanding is that that is talking about spiritual maturity. So not only an initial regeneration or justification where they are declared to be righteous, but also that they would come to the knowledge of the truth, that they would grow in their sanctification. So whatever the case is, however you take this this verse, what I think is clear is that our universal prayer must be consistent with God's desire. And God's desire is to see all people saved. So we ought to pray that way. We ought to pray for all kinds of people. Second universal prayer is consistent with sound doctrine. When we pray for more than just our people, we are being consistent with sound doctrine. Paul makes three observations that sound doctrine uh, about sound doctrine that make our praying consistent with what is true. First, the unity of God. He says there is one God. That is, each person of the Godhead is unified in purpose to see all kinds of people saved. It's not that God is warring with the Son or the Spirit as to who He desires to be saved or or who He's working to save. But we have unity in the Godhead. And so when we pray in this way, we are consistent with the unity that's in the Godhead. We also are consistent with the mediation of Jesus Christ. Notice the next part of verse, verse um, 5. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to God, and it's through God the Son. And therefore, when we pray for all people... We are praying appropriately because Christ has opened the way to all people. Hasn't He? He's opened the way so that any person who comes to Jesus will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a universal call and a universal promise. And then verse 6, the universal availability of Christ's atonement. The universal availability of Christ's atonement, who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. This is consistent with Mark's Gospel when Jesus says about Himself in Mark 10.45, He says, The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. He made the payment that was necessary to buy us out of slavery to sin and Satan. And He did that with the blood that He shed on the cross. So when we pray for God to advance the mission of our church and the mission of all churches... We pray in a way that's consistent with what is true about God. That He is unified in the Godhead regarding His desire. That He has made the way possible for all to be saved through Jesus Christ. And that this atonement that Christ has made possible is available to any who will come to Him. Anyone who will come through Jesus Christ will be saved. So praying for all kinds of people is consistent first with God's will. Praying for all kinds of people is consistent with sound doctrine. And then thirdly, Praying for all kinds of people is consistent with Paul's ministry in verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, Paul, what were you commissioned to do? What kind of responsibility do you have now, Paul, as an apostle? And Paul would say, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Not that he was excluding the Jews and no longer concerned about the Jews. Remember, the first thing that he would do when he came to a city was go into the synagogue. So he was concerned about the Jews. But he saw himself as spreading the message of the gospel to more than just the Jews, to non-Jews. He wanted to see Jews and non-Jews reached. And I'm thankful to God that he did because I am a non-Jew. I am a Gentile. Paul's working to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. And so this is consistent with God's desire to see all people saved through Christ. And so when we pray un- with a universal scope in view, pray for all kinds of people, then we're praying in a way that's consistent with, um, with, with God's will and with sound doctrine and with Paul's ministry. Let's think about a couple application here tonight. Number one, pray small. Couldn't think of a better way to put this. Um, it sounds kind of trite or unimportant if we pray small but i but what i mean by this is pray for people within your immediate circles of influence pray for your church pray for your family absolutely pray for your friends we ought to be praying for ourselves but these are not the only ones who we should be praying for right if we're only praying for Johnny's knee and Aunt Lulu's surgery then then we pray as if we have this local god who's only concerned about our local needs and we don't really care what's going on outside of us. But our God is the God of the universe. And the scope of our mission, it goes beyond our little smaller world. It goes much farther than our little town. It expands to the whole world. And so we ought to pray big. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, and there's nothing that our God cannot do. The valleys are His, and the mountains are His, and the skies show His handiwork too. So pray to this God. The God of the universe for all men. Pray beyond your walls. Show your faith in your big God by praying big prayers. Now, one of the hard parts about praying this way is it's hard to see God respond. It's hard to know if He does respond. But I think we still ought to do it. You know, sometimes we... um, you know, we go to one extreme, we pray so generically that we would never know if God answered us. And the other extreme is we pray so specific that we're either disappointed when God doesn't respond or we don't pray generically enough to and, and trust in God even when we don't know the answer. We may not know the answer in this lifetime. But let me give you an exercise this week. As you read the Scriptures, I trust that you're reading the Scriptures each day. And as you read the Scriptures, test this theory. How is it, as you come to various passages on prayer, it's it's almost inevitable that throughout a given week you'll come to a passage where one of the, the writers of Scripture or one of the characters in the story of Scripture is praying. So test this theory. How do believers in the Scriptures pray? Do they pray only for themselves, or do they pray big prayers? Do they pray beyond themselves? Let me just give you an example from the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, the one where Peter said, teach us to pray, Lord. How many of the, Lord's, how many of the elements of the Lord's Prayer have to do with the prayer's individual needs? Well, let's think about it together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Anything about our individual needs there yet? Nothing. All big. That's a big prayer. Talking about the greatness of our God. He lives in heaven above, and His name is hallowed. It is holy. Okay, so so far, nothing with regard to individual prayer. Your kingdom come. What's that prayer for? It's a prayer beyond not only our little space, our little town, but it's beyond our time. That your kingdom would come to earth, which is when? Still in the future. At least seven years away. When the kingdom will come. And it will be on this earth. And Jesus will reign for 1,000 years. And then there will be an eternal kingdom to follow. We're praying for that day to come, are we not? That's a big prayer. And we'll see answered one day. But not in our lifetime. So far, nothing about our individual Needs. How about the next line? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so, God, what's going on in heaven? When you command that something is done in heaven, what happens? Delay? Disobedience? No, it gets done. So, we pray, God, that the kind of response you get in heaven to your will would also be done on the earth because right now we and countless millions of other people are saying, Often to God, no. We know what you said, but no, we're not going to do it. We're we're going to resist your will. So God, would you cause how it operates in heaven to operate on earth? Now, that, there's some individual, pray you know, some individual part of our life that's connected to that. We want to see ourselves uh, submit to that, but in the larger sense, right? That's a huge prayer, isn't it? praying that the whole world, God, would be obedient to you, that would be submissive to you. And we know that that also is beyond us. It's coming at a different time. It's coming when the kingdom comes to the earth, especially the eternal kingdom. The next line does move to an immediate individual need, right? "Give Give us this day our daily bread. So, again, we don't miss these things. We don't ignore these things. We don't not pray for them. How foolish would we be to pray for just big things and not pray for small things. God calls us to do this. And then the next one, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Again, another immediate individual prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Another one. And then the final line for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Kind of a larger prayer. But but can can you do that exercise this week? As you just come across the prayer, it doesn't take a lot of work, just kind of think through this idea. How do the, do the people in Scripture pray to God? Are they praying for individual needs, for big things? Are they praying for, for things beyond them? Um, and, and so if we just take the Lord's Prayer as an example, the first half of the prayer, effectively, is all big prayer. It's all beyond our little home or church. The second half is more immediate and concerned with our immediate needs, and it's completely right to do that. But take this week and test the prayers in the Bible in your normal Bible reading and see what you can find. We have a mission as a church to reach the world with the gospel. And so we ought to, as a church, pray in a way that is consistent with our big goal, our big mission. And we should pray in, in a way that's consistent with our big God. What do we say about our God if we don't pray big prayers? What do we think that our God can really do when we only pray for small things? What do we say about the power of Christ's big atonement if we don't pray for people to be changed by it? So pray for all people. Pray for kings and authorities so that you'll be able to carry out your mission to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity so that the world around you can be reached with the gospel and so that the the gospel can spread to more and more people around the world. Pray in that way. Let's pray right now. Father, we're thankful that You are a big God, so strong and so mighty. We've seen You work in powerful ways in biblical history, in our own history. We've seen You work through uh, the power of the Gospel in our own lives and in lives around us. We've seen You work the power of the gospel in lives outside of us, outside of our immediate circles of influence. We've also seen you work in big and powerful ways through our missionaries and through other missionaries around the world who spread the fame of your name to more and more people. We're seeing the gospel inf- infiltrate more and more tribes, peoples, and tongues, and nations. And we know that, that it will completely infiltrate all of them because there's coming a day when And there will be people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation who will worship Christ together with us with the Jews. And we will sing praises to our great Savior. And Lord, we, we don't want to ignore the individual needs and the great spiritual warfare that our individual members and friends are involved in. And so we want to pray for those things. Lord, we don't want to see You as a local and small God. We want to see You as You are, a big God who's in charge of all the universe, has control over all things. So we pray. We pray big. We pray that You would advance the mission of the Gospel beyond this church through our missionaries and through other churches and through other missionaries that we don't support. And and we pray that the Gospel would spread to more and more people We pray for our government, that that You would allow us to be able to live peaceful and quiet lives so that we could be able to see the advance of this mission go on and on. We're thankful for the example of Timothy and the the church at Ephesus who desired to see the same thing. And we pray that You would help us to be more faithful in the way that we pray individually and as a church. May we trust in You and not be found... um, rebellious, or distrusting. Help us to know You more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.